Welcome to Voices in My Head, the official podcast of me, Rick Lee James. I'm a recording artist, a singer, songwriter, an author, a worship leader, and an ordained minister in the Church of the Nazarene. The Voices in My Head podcast is your source for discussions on music, literature, movies, pop culture, theology, and more. Now sit back, relax, and listen to the latest episode of the Voices in My Head podcast. And don't forget to let the voices in your head be heard by following me on Twitter at Rick Lee James and sharing your thoughts about today's show. Welcome back to Voices in My Head. As always, I am your host, Rick Lee James, and I'm so glad that you could join us here this week. We have a couple of really great guests this week. We have Randy Smoot and Brandon Sipes, and I'm going to tell you more about them in just a moment. But I want to begin today's episode with a quote, because we're going to be talking about racism, white privilege, injustice, and and maybe a a variety of other things today. And, And I'll do a better introduction of Brandon and Randy in just a moment. Um, but, but let me read this quote first. Actually, I changed my mind. I'm going to introduce him first because I want you to respond straight out to the quote. So Randy Smoot is a prob- probation officer in the Clark County Juvenile Court here in Springfield, Ohio. And Brandon Sipes used to work uh, with Randy, but now he is the program coordinator for Nazarene Compassionate Ministries. Those of you that have listened to the podcast uh, know Brandon. He's been on here numerous times and has had several wonderful things to contribute. So let me get that out of the way, and uh, and I'll go right into this quote. And I have asked our guest today um, to respond to this quote because I think it's such a good one and maybe a a good place for us to have this conversation. But let's just begin with this quote by Jim Wallace. It's from his book, America's Original Sin, Racism, White Privilege, and the Bridge to a New America. The quote says, Let nobody give you the impression that the problem of racial injustice will work itself out. Let nobody give you the impression that only time will solve the problem. That is a myth. And it is a myth because time is neutral. It can be used either constructively or destructively. And I'm absolutely convinced that the people of ill will in our nation, the extreme rightists, the forces committed to negative ends, have used time much more effectively than the people of goodwill. It may well be that we will have to repent in this generation, not merely for the vitriolic works and violent actions of the bad people who bomb a church in Birmingham, Alabama, or shoot down a civil rights worker in Selma, but for the appalling silence and indifference of the good people who sit around and say, wait on time. Somewhere we must come to see that human progress never rolls in on wheels of inevitability. It comes through the tireless efforts and persistent work of dedicated individuals. Without this hard work, time becomes an ally of the primitive forces of social stagnation. So, we must help time and realize that the time is always right to do right. So, I'm going to ask Randy first. uh, Just give me your, your quick initial response to a quote like that. So, I think my initial response is... I think I've always find it interesting when we get to talking about time in this regard because time is actually not on our side when we think about how much time it has been since mm. some of the, like, the most awful things in our country's history has happened, right? So mm-hmm. people want us to think that things happened such a long time ago um, when in reality, I'm 35 years old and I, my big mama, who I spent a significant amount of time with, it's my grandmother's mother in Alabama. 
So I spent every bit of my first 10, 12 years with her every single summer. And her grandmother was a slave, mm. right? So you're looking at, what is that, four or five generations where yeah. we have connections with people that was just, you know, years ago. So already the idea, even if time will heal everything, we just haven't had a bunch of time, mm. right? Um, and that's just from a slavery standpoint. I mean, you, you fast forward another 100 years, and now you're dealing with Jim Crow. And then, you, you know, you now we're 50, 60, 70 years later and we're expecting that that amount of time was sufficient to have fixed everything and that just doesn't make sense as a premise. Hmm. Um, I think the other idea though with that quote that I think is so important is that as we move to a place where we want to sort of come together and, and, and sort of bridge some of these gaps, um, there's too many groups that think we can do it alone. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, we have African American groups that we want to say we got to do it ourselves and, and, and you have white groups that maybe say they want to do it themselves. When in reality, none of that can work if we're not if we're not working together. If 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 people who have privilege don't recognize it in themselves and and work actively to 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 shape sort of the future of how things are supposed to be, we'll never get there. Mm-hmm. Um, so so one, I think the idea of time. Well, we just haven't had a lot of it. But two, the idea of being passive. Um, and not taking an active role in in, in uh, changing some of these things, like that's what we're going to need. We're going to need active participation from everyone in order to uh, in order to get to where we want to go. Hmm. Excellent. Yeah, I, th- I think uh, you know, there's that phrase or that colloquialism where you know they talk about time as a luxury, and, and you know mm-hmm. everybody wants more time and. Um, I think the reality is that for many in the black community, time is a scarcity, not a luxury, because there's no waiting on what what should be happening, hmm. right? So for, for someone like myself, um, you know, time is a luxury because I don't, I don't have anything to worry about for the hmm. most part. Like when, uh, you know, if I had, uh, and I guess I'll describe this more in a minute, if my, if my children were white... Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I wouldn't have to worry about them going to school back and forth. I wouldn't have to worry about them hanging out, you know, with their friends. I, um, if, you know, I'm white, I, when I go out, I don't have to worry about, you know, being pulled over for no reason. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have to worry about my, my body, my safety, my, um, my security for the most part. And so time for me is a luxury. And I don't, I don't have this issue of constantly feeling under pressure from a society that hasn't come to grips with how they have treated my people Mm -hmm. for that long and so you know if it takes 10 years or 100 years it makes no difference whatsoever to me Mm -hmm. because I'm not the one under pressure Mm -hmm. and that's not the case for black people in our country Mm -hmm. they do feel under pressure they do every time there's a news story feel like how powerful it is and how close it feels to them. I don't feel that. It doesn't feel close to me in the same way that it does for Randy and the same mm-hmm. way that it does for others. So time really is a luxury for me, but it's not for other people. And I, I feel like I, I appreciate what Jim says in that um, that passage. And sometimes I feel like even in that passage, his language wasn't strong enough to say that, you know, the, the passage of time is, you know, something we just wait on. And, and some of us want to say, well, we'll just wait and it'll get better. I, I think sometimes for for white people in the U.S., especially those who don't want to recognize 
the current pain of the black community it's not it's not just that they feel like well time will heal it it's a it's an intentional strategy mm-hmm. to say well let's just wait let's just wait it's not unintentional to say time will heal it. It's intentional to dismiss mm-hmm. all of that with the excuse of, well, if we wait, excuse me, if we wait, it'll just sort itself out. And we have folks on the other side of that mm-hmm. struggle who are saying, you know, we have been waiting. And not only have we been waiting, but we can't wait because people mm-hmm. are dying. You know, we're we're sitting in the midst of this struggle and your your luxury to wait is not afforded to us. Would, would it be um, maybe similar to, I mean, this, this might not be a great scenario, but I think of a person drowning. It's a lot different for the person that's drowning than the person that's on the shore saying, I'll get help. <laughs> Wait, let me go get somebody. And right. and it's there's a lot. there might be some urgency for the person's like, oh, i got to save that person. But it's really urgent for the person in the water, <laughs> you know. And uh, so there's a sense in which there's a different perspective that, uh, sometimes we just don't see. So, uh, sorry, did you have something else to add to that? Well, no, I think just to sort of piggyback on your analogy, mm-hmm. um, and it was something that Brandon mentioned that I think is really important um, to sort of follow the analogy of the person drowning. Mm-hmm. Um, for myself, it almost feels like, yeah, so the, there's a person drowning, there's a person on shore that is frantic about getting help, but then they keep telling the person who's drowning, hey, people used to drown a whole lot faster than you. Oh. Um, or, and, and you go, wow. you go, but, but 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 I'm drowning right now, like like, and so there's so often, like the pain that, that mm-hmm. I feel is dismissed, right? right. Um, I'm constantly told it's not as bad as I mm-hmm. think it is, or mm-hmm. that it's not as bad as I feel it is, and and so what makes it interesting though when we talk about time, and I know Brandon was talking about his luxury of time. I think about it in in terms of it's only a matter of time, right? right? So. Every single hour of every single day, I am not plagued with this, right? Mm-hmm. But yet, there are times when I think to myself, it's only a matter of time before this happens to me. Mm. Um, it's only a matter of time before I get profiled again. Like right. It's only a matter of time, or I have a five-year-old son, and I say, it's only a matter of time before he's going to be experiencing these things, right? And so, yeah, like we're, we're drowning, like, yeah. and, and, and we don't need to talk about that other people drown quicker than we did. Yeah. That you know the water is not as deep as it used to be because we're still drowning and yeah. we still need we still need people to recognize that. Yeah, for sure. Well, before we get too far into that, and we're already off to a great start, let me describe to listeners why exactly we're having this conversation. And you may feel like we've kind of thrown you into the midst of it, but I intentionally wanted to do that and have this conversation. Because I feel like every day um, there's another thing that we're thrown into the midst of. There's sort of another um, another shooting. There's another tragedy. There's another uh, a protest that's happening. And, and there's a lot of people with a lot of different things to say about it. Some very informed, some not very informed at all. There's a lot of different feelings about that. Uh, I wanted to invite Brandon on here because Brandon um, has done so much work in, uh, in the field of just helping uh, sort of reconcile people, and and uh, we're, we're going to talk about a book that you wrote uh, some of, uh, you wrote an essay for in a few moments, hopefully, too. Uh, but Brandon, in his work with Nazarene Compassionate Ministries, I think he has a very unique perspective on the suffering of many people. And if anything, Brandon is very good at seeing um, 
both sides or sometimes maybe five or six or seven sides of an issue that that are not um, so clearly seen by just one of us. And so I think that's very helpful. Um, I, I'm just starting to get to know Randy. I, I saw him at this forum that he put on not too long ago. Um, and I went because Brandon was on the panel. And Randy did an excellent job organizing this forum here in Springfield that was really for the city. And it was just a great night. I mean, I, I thought it was... Uh, maybe I thought it was just a victory for our city. You know, I felt like it was a good conversation that was had, and and I thought like you would bring a unique perspective on a couple levels because you are a probation officer, but you're also a black person, and we're in this time where literally was it. I, was it just last week where we had this, this police shooting in Tulsa uh, of Terrence Crutcher? Maybe a week and a half ago now, uh, we had the shooting in Charlotte of Keith Lamont Scott. And uh, one of them, a video was released pretty quick. The other one, the video was not right away. There was, there was various things that happened. So that's kind of a springboard of, hey, it's, it's time we, we have a, a conversation and I know Brandon specifically put on his Facebook wall he said if anybody wants to have a conversation about this I'm not going to choose Facebook as a forum for this but me and my friend Randy would be glad to have a discussion so I brought you guys here to kind of jump in and have this discussion so Brandon you're wanting to say something so yeah I mean just to say I don't know if you have a question coming up but just to say about the actual like the conversation and mm-hmm. engaging in conversation because you mentioned those two incidents uh I guess I, I can, it's nice just to call them incidents, but uh, even yesterday, or was it yesterday or the day before, there was another shooting in San Diego. Mm-hmm. A sister called the police because her uh, her brother, right. who was um, ha- having some mental issues, was um, sort of distraught. And so uh, the headline that I saw today was it, it took the police an hour to respond to the call and a minute to shoot him. Mm. Um, and uh, there, there was a, a young boy in Columbus, Ohio, that was shot around the same time as the other two that you mentioned. And then additionally, just within the last week here in Springfield, a 13-year-old boy was stopped on his way home uh, at about 8 o'clock at night. And and uh, I don't remember all the detail of that story, but was stopped and, and searched and, and you know checked simply because he's a 13-year-old black boy walking mm-hmm. home. And the, the thing that I want to say about that, about this conversation you know, Randy, I think maybe the first or second time that I had Randy over to our house for a bunch of food that he didn't really want to eat. Um, <laughs> we can talk about that on a different podcast, a food podcast or something. Uh, the first or second time I had him over, he and I, I mean, we have this conversation or some form of this conversation almost every time we're together. And it's one of the reasons I really value our relationship. But we, we talked about, and I, I told him, you know, I want to keep having these conversations. I want to mm-hmm. keep engaging this topic. I said, but I'm not always going to do it well. And I'm going to I'm going to say the wrong thing sometimes. And I'm going to not only say the wrong thing, but I'm going to have the wrong opinion sometimes. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say something that probably is ignorant or offensive or, or something that I've not even thought through really well. But I told him, I, I want to, I want to keep having those mistakes with you. Like I don't, mm-hmm. I don't want to shy away from it just because I may not have the conversation well. And I, I think I don't think it's true of all the people that don't engage in this conversation about race in the U.S. I think mm-hmm. some of them intentionally avoid this conversation for mm-hmm. more uh, negative reasons. But many, I think, avoid it because of the incredible levels of discomfort that it can bring. Mm-hmm. Um, not just discomfort in the fact that it's a hard issue and that, that, that for the most part we're still segregated people and we don't interact with people mm-hmm. of other races or faiths or traditions or whatever – 
but also just because even even having the conversation well with someone, they're mm-hmm. hard topics, yeah. and there's the possibility you could really say something stupid. And I, my encouragement for folks is that just have the conversation and find someone that you trust to have that conversation with. That you know, Randy and I pick on each other quite a mm-hmm. bit, um, but we recognize that there's an authenticity to our conversations mm-hmm. that we have committed to very early on. And if I mess it up, if he messes up, like we'll call each other out on it, but we're, we've committed to at least walking alongside each other while mm-hmm. we struggle with how to, yeah. how to talk about it well. Yeah, and, I've, and I feel like half the time too, and, and let me set up some perspective that, uh, for all this too and talk about somebody that probably as well would feel like, I'll, I'm not just on this subject, I can name a multitude of subjects that I am ignorant about and I'll say the wrong thing on many times. But there's a great episode of The Office. I think it's like the second episode of the very first season, way back. And I think a lot of times we feel like Michael Scott sometimes on that show who who wants desperately not to appear racist. So he says something like, oh, I don't see color. I can't tell if you're black or... Like, I don't see it. It's not there. You know, and then and then proceeds through throughout the episode, try to do a racial awareness thing, and it's the most offensive, like, racist thing you've ever seen. So I realize where we're recording tonight... I sit in a, a very nice church building that I've been on staff at for some time uh, that I long to see be less segregated. And yet I have to admit, as I look out on Sunday morning, uh, the majority of the people who aren't white are kids who've been adopted or a couple of families maybe that have, have moved here from another country that maybe have started a restaurant or something. But I'm going to still say, what, 90, 98% at least, you know, of uh, yeah, the people that come here. And and most church functions, you know, that I go to, except for like if I do when Springfield sings and that makes a concerted effort, we're going to join all the churches together. But when I visit like a, a church like St. John's in town, it seems like it's the other extreme. It's it's almost entirely uh, black, and then there's you know three or four uh, white people in the midst. And I always feel like, why is it that way? Like in the kingdom of God, where it's supposed to be, we don't have that. We're still like the, the churches are maybe one of the most prime examples. And I think of that quote that I just read. You know, sometimes maybe one of the greatest things we have to answer for. Um, are are the people who want to do the right thing that are just remaining silent and not doing anything about it. And so part of this conversation is I want to talk about maybe some practical ways. What can we start like doing about this? And I also want to, to point out like um, – if I can, I'm going to try, like, let's let's maybe identify some of those, like, dumb things that those Michael Scotts among us say. Like, honestly, like, like here's the thing that immediately comes to mind um, whenever I hear, like, the, the shootings that have just happened. And, and I, I only said those two because that was the initial impetus to do, like, this episode. But then, like you said, there have been multiple ones since. And I heard almost immediately, whether it be Facebook or from conversations people I had, well, there's just as many white people that get shot by police, you know. So, well, so first, respond to that for me first, because I know that's not the right thing to say. <laughs> but like, that's just an example of what I want to give, like things that things that we often say. Yeah. Well, so first of all, I think that the most important part of of any of these conversations is making sure that it's a genuine conversation and. I think if it's a genuine conversation, you can make these mistakes and you can be less than articulate. And if you're mm-hmm. having a conversation with someone who who can 
for lack of better words, correct you or maybe give you a different perspective. And if you're having a conversation with an open mind, you may not make that same mistake if you have that conversation in the future. What happens so many times, though, is that people aren't having that conversation with an open mind. Mm -hmm. um, so I think the first thing is don't be afraid to say the wrong thing. I mean, you have to say what you're feeling, what you're thinking, and let the other person do the same. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, so often I think we are afraid of the word ignorant because of the connotation that it has with mm -hmm. it, when in reality we're just ignorant of things until yeah. somebody gives us the knowledge, right? True. Um, and so I've had this conversation far too many times, um, and it is it is pretty common to hear well, white people get shot just as many times. Or mm -hmm. what about black on black crime? Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, when someone gets shot by the police, everybody cares about Chicago. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> what about Chicago? Um, they people 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 always want to talk about the rioting mm -hmm. and the looting. Um, they want to talk about Black Lives Matter. Um, and what I found with these things is that people are just not educated on these topics mm -hmm. and if you are not educated on a topic but yet you are interested like you're curious and you want to you want to learn about it then I think you can get past it mm -hmm. but if you're not educated on a topic and you have no interest in hearing what the truth is about a topic mm -hmm. then I think the conversation is fruitless anyway yeah you know just to kind of give you an idea and and so when I'm having this conversation I usually will start with Yes, black on black crime is really is really bad because all mm -hmm. X on X crime is really bad. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, Chicago's awful. I wish we could get it together. Um, yeah, like now with now with that being said, now mm -hmm. let's talk about some of these police shootings. Yeah, um, because on some level they are separate. Um, and I just had a conversation with a with, with a gentleman who, because of a, a pretty similar request that I had put on Facebook about anyone want to talk about this, I'm more mm -hmm. than happy to meet you at a coffee shop and we do it. Yeah. Well, he took me up on that. Um, and we had a conversation just this week about any number of race issues. Um, and he, he said it's the exact same thing. So, um, what about black on black crime? Like, is, mm -hmm. that's more important. And I'm like, absolutely. I'm like, I, I don't want to put it in a sort of a, if you make a pie graph, mm -hmm. which is going to be most important. Trust me, if we did that, then the police shootings would not be a huge majority of it. Mm -hmm. It would be a small piece of it. But it's a piece of it that we're going to have to talk about. Like, mm -hmm. we can't just keep acting like it doesn't exist because it's not the majority. Yeah. Um, you know what I'm saying? Those other issues, huge issues, right? Yeah. We need to talk about them. And I'm more than happy to talk about them. Mm -hmm. But they don't, they don't necessarily <laughs> mix. And when they mix, to me, I wonder, why are you so quick to mix them? Mm -hmm. um, like, why do you want to talk about why do you want to all of a sudden talk about crime in inner cities when mm -hmm. we're having a conversation about people being shot by the police? Yeah, I, I mean, I know why. <laughs> um, I, I hesitate to make this analogy a little bit because I don't want to, like, it sounds a little insulting and I don't mean it to be, but, you know, when, you know, just before I came over here, I was reprimanding my son for something. He, he was getting upset. Uh, I don't remember what for. Uh, but he was upset about something, and so I was uh, sort of correcting him or whatever. And, it, like, one of his responses was, well, my Deja, my sister did the same thing, you know, or did something else or whatever. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I realized it's because he felt uh, he'd been caught and he felt guilty and he was about to get in trouble. And so his his instinct was to try to shift the narrative to something else, to shift the attention and the blame to something else and say, well, but this is happening over here. Mm -hmm. And... Every single time, like he said, every time there's a shooting or whatever and, and anybody 
like Randy or myself or someone else, if they post about it on Facebook or there's a news story or whatever, you read the comments, which do yourself a favor, never no, read no, comments no. on any site ever. Um, <laughs> but people will always start to point to these other things. What about black on black crime? What about police killing white people? What about and what that does is it tries to distract people from that issue. And it says, well, what about all these other things, right? And so, you know, when I was doing refugee work, the response was always, what about all the vets in the U.S. that don't mm -hmm. get attention and care? And I'm like, well, okay, what, what have you been doing recently for right. the vets that are not getting attention and care? Like, are you, are you concerned about them at mm -hmm. any other time other than when it's convenient for you to use them as an excuse to not do this other thing? And I, we've gotten really good at doing that. And it's unfortunate mm -hmm. because all we're doing is it's like the shell game, mm -hmm. you know, where we move mm -hmm. this stuff around and we forget actually where the important parts are. And the, the only other thing I wanted to say about that is I, I, I agree, you know, even, even if you look at like the numbers level, you know, black on black homicides, the number's huge. And yeah, Chicago is like, I don't know what is happening there, but it's, it is rough there, and there have been some really fantastic programs. If you go and watch a documentary called The Interrupters that Frontline did, mm -hmm. it's incredible about work that's being done to try to disrupt violence in Chicago. Um, but I should point out, next week I have three concerts in Chicago that nice. I'm playing, so, <laughs> nice. you know, well, looking for, forward to that. Thanks. But, but all those concerts say Rick James, so you should be fine. <laughs> um, so uh, so when we see like when we see all those things we see the Chicago like we we, we recognize those as as um, something to lament something to be sad about and, and like we we lament that the situation in our country is that all these young men are killing each other and these families are disintegrating in front of our eyes but I do think that there is something specific and dangerous about an agent of the state and an agent of the government mm -hmm. that has incredible power over a population, there is something different about that than just citizen on citizen crime, as Randy mm -hmm. said, X on X crime. In all of my work in conflict and reconciliation, working with Israelis and Palestinians, working with church groups, whatever kind of group it is, when I recognize that there's a power imbalance, mm -hmm. people that have a lot of power versus people that have a little power, I always know that that's the first place I have to start. Mm -hmm. And that is the situation here, that there is a huge power imbalance between officers and citizens, mm -hmm. and that we our expectation of officers and citizens is that citizens behave with the kind of discipline we would expect officers to behave with and officers because of their power we give them a a blank check to to act as they will based on their discretion mm -hmm. and we never flip that script mm -hmm. it's never that we expect the officers to act with this incredible amount of discipline whatever the results are I wouldn't say never, that's too strong of a statement, but, but the reality is that there's a giant power imbalance there and that we, we have to look at that really carefully and understand that, that that changes that scenario for me. That's one of the reasons that that distracting our attention by black on black crime or whatever else mm -hmm. it is doesn't work for me. Okay. No. <clears throat> and so it's funny that, that you mentioned that about the power imbalance and how that is... is such a major part of what's going on and kind of what's sad about what's going on. And I recognize that and think to myself, 
that is a big deal. That is not the biggest deal for me. Mm-hmm. Um, because I can probably go through my day, well, not anymore because I'm a probation officer, but <laughs> uh, I used to be able to go through my day without having any interaction with a police officer. Mm-hmm. Um, but I couldn't go through my day without having any interactions with white people, mm-hmm. right? And so for me, what hurts me the most about these things, besides the fact that people are dying, mm-hmm. is that there's not an immediate compassion for the person who died. Mm-hmm. Um, like I, 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 I always ask people, like, do you not even just feel bad that another human being died? Yeah. Like, so we can talk about the specifics of the situation, but at your core, do you just look at it and go, well, a person died, and that's sad, mm-hmm. and because they so instantly villainize the person and, and, and make this sort of caricature out of out of mm-hmm. the victim, it almost seems to me like what 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 am I when you see me alive? Mm-hmm. So you see this person who has just died and you can't muster up enough compassion to feel bad about them. Yeah. Because they're because they're scary. Mm-hmm. Because they're a big bad dude. Uh, because they are inherently criminal. Mm-hmm. And they're and they're lying they're dead. So when you see me driving down the street or you see me walking down the street, what is your thoughts about me? Like, that's what scares me more than... That scares me as much as my interactions with the police. Is there is there is a... There's a bias in people that, for no reason besides what I look like, have already made up their mind that I'm a threat. Hmm. And people do scary things when they're threatened. So that, yeah. that, that makes me really... That makes me really scared. Do, do you think some of the problem is... Um, I think when you can put a name to the person and when you know a little something about them, immediately that changes what you feel about it. Like I, I and, and let me let me put it this way, we see so much um, on television, on the news, whatever, some sometimes real shootings, sometimes just like we're watching die hard, you know <laughs> and and we're so accustomed to shootings. But the scenario changes, hey, I knew that person. And I feel like there's not, um, I, I, I feel like maybe, and maybe I'm just speaking for me, there's often so much disconnect because we have so few relationships on that side of things, maybe. And, and maybe I'm just, again, speaking on that perspective. When I know the person, let's say that the person shot was, was my friend Lee you know, who's doing great work in Atlanta and is is pastoring and, and doing an awesome job at church there. If I find out suddenly Lee is the one that got shot, it changes my world. There is a sense, though, in which we we have to somehow learn to personalize the human. I love how you said, you know, just as a human being, we need to start feeling something for that. I think somehow we're so desensitized to just be like, oh, another shooting, and somehow we have to recapture that life is precious, that every life is precious in some way um, is is part of recapturing this, I guess. But Well, I, I do think that if things are personal, I think it, there's just different reactions if you, if you know a person. Yeah. I kind of fear, though, um, if, and I'll use a, re- a reference from the movie, um, Do the Right Thing. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie. But in Do the Right Thing, uh, there's, a, there's a character who... For all intents and purposes, it's pretty racist. Um, and uh, a black coworker with him says, "Dude, how are you racist when your favorite basketball player is Magic Johnson and your favorite artist is, is Michael Jackson?" And he goes, "Well, not them. They're fine." <laughs> and so, and so, like, and so, like, I, 
I get the idea that it makes things more personal when you know people, but there's mm-hmm. also that fear that you can make the exception for how you feel because you know them. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, they're really scary, but but not my friend Todd. My friend Todd is good. Yeah. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I... Uh I have actively, like literally actively worked against in my mind making Randy my black friend. Mm. Because Randy is my black friend. Like he's my friend and he's black. But I, I could I could make him like a totem, right? Mm-hmm. And and that would that would exempt me from all kinds of stuff because I could be like, well no, I gotta I got a black friend, I don't have to worry. Like I can make right. racist jokes, I can not care about this issue or another because I've got Mm-hmm. You know, I've got. I hang out with Randy like he's a good dude, and it reminds me a little bit of uh, one of the uh, authors in Conflict Transformation that I read early on. Um, he was relating a story about when he was. I th- I'm uh, I'm going to paraphrase and mess it up because I don't remember exactly who he was meeting with, but I think it, at the time he was meeting with someone from Hezbollah, mm-hmm. which is a, a terrorist organization listed as a terrorist organization by the U.S. Um, and uh, he was meeting with some of their leadership and sitting with them, and um, it was either Hezbollah or Hamas and uh, having dinner with them and and he was interviewing them and he said you know i i thought that you thought all americans were you know infidel and you know to be hated and all this Mm -hmm. stuff and they said no no but you're our guest Mm -hmm. and you know we have you in the space so i i i agree with you Mm -hmm. and with randy that there it does absolutely it breaks down that barrier in a way that does allow for some actual emotion um but i i also believe pretty strongly that we we also use that as a way to shield ourselves from the actual difficulty and pain and emotion of entering into that conversation or that reality and mm-hmm. so so personalizing a situation you know we we might be able to say oh well of course i feel sad about it and there's always a but mm-hmm. and we we do that so that we can sort of shield ourselves from having to ask the really hard questions about our responsibility and our right. and what what our role is in all of this. And I mm-hmm. I'm, I'm certain um, that I wouldn't have to go too far back into my past and history to get back to the point where that's where I was. You know, to just look at. Mm-hmm who I was and why I thought about race and to recognize myself in that moment as a person who said, oh, I'm not racist. I mean, I, you know, I don't think everybody's all bad, but then be able to turn around and do exactly all the same kind of stuff that we were just talking about when a situation like this arises. And I feel like one, uh, I hesitate to even say it this way. This is one of those moments out like I'm failing in our conversation, you know, but I'm going to do it with you together right here. now. I, I feel like, maybe one of the only benefits of of the almost like the temperature being raised on race relations and all these issues right now and yes more people dying is that we're almost forced into this conversation now in a way mm-hmm. i mean white folks like myself we're almost forced into this conversation in a way that we haven't been before and i don't want that to be the byproduct of of all this stuff right. happening and it's like that's what we should be lamenting is that we it's taken until now and many of us are refusing it or disengaging or ignoring it mm-hmm. or actively fighting against it but like it's taken us until now and taken folks yes like black lives matter like other activists like voices in the black community that are saying look we are drowning mm-hmm. and where are you yeah. like are you on the shore and if you are what are you doing like cuz yeah. i don't 
I don't feel anybody in the water with me. Yeah. So where is everybody at? Well, and that's that's another interesting thing because, um, like, I posted one thing uh, in support of Black Lives Matter, and it was a, a post from uh, Jess Middendorf, who's just a guy that is a friend and person in our denomination that's amazing. And it seemed like a war broke out on my Facebook wall. And I was like, what is the deal? <laughs> like, people were so offended. And, of course, all white, you know, everybody that was on there that was saying that. Um, and I, it just felt uh, like, well, let, let me personalize it for me a little bit, some of my journey of where I've come from. Um, I, it's probably been 10, 15 years ago now when somebody had to, ask me do you know what white privilege is and i'm like no i've never heard of it <laughs> you know and ser- and seriously when you hear that and they go okay well then you need to find this you know like there's I, I this i wouldn't have understood that then either uh, that well I, I mean it's 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 one of those things that you know i think we're all on this journey together and we have to hear but i i think i could still ask a lot of those people posting those things you know what this is and they'd probably be that exact same response that i had in the past um, but but I know this. I've I've been reading up a little bit on on some of the um, chronic disorders that a lot of Black people are having, and and you might know more about this than I do. But um, some of the fatigue that's that's coming, things that I don't worry about every day, like um, just a, a sort of a almost chronic worrying, um, sort of like um, there's a lot of people that are having difficulty even concentrating. Sometimes it's physically affecting them. Um, sometimes with things like headaches, um, ulcers, and and it's all just because of the worry involved around what may happen to them, like maybe from a, a police shooting or somebody racially profiling there and pulling them over. That's not something that I got up this morning and went, well, I'm worried about that today. It's just not. It just doesn't exist in my world. Um and and I wonder if you could speak a little bit to that, and may I'd love to hear about some of um, your perspective on what are some of the maybe the everyday racisms that we don't even realize maybe that we're perpetuating, you know, that, like that. So I think that um, uh, yeah, there's, a, there's a lot there. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, so. And just to kind of talk a little bit about, well, first I want to just mention. Black Lives Matter because I am the same way and then mm-hmm. the, the second you you mention it it's just it's a firestorm yeah um, and part of the reason is um, I think uh, the idea of Black Lives Matter literally if another word would have been added to the end of it if it would have just been Black Lives Matter too I think we could have avoided this whole thing oh. um, so I think there's some marketing issues there but we can, we can take that out of the meeting I guess um, because because so many people think that it's Black Lives Matter only. Mm-hmm. Um, when in reality, when it all started, it was you know people in a room and literally saying to themselves, "Our lives matter," mm-hmm. and and that was just an idea. You know, it was not a group; it was an idea. Um, but but people are so defensive, and once they hear it, they get they get very defensive. Very similar to the idea of privilege, right? Mm-hmm. When privilege was introduced to me when I was an undergrad. It was a extremely difficult concept for me to get because to mm-hmm. me it just meant things, right? You, mm-hmm. Rich kids have privileges, and and it was tough for me to go. Also, oh, that's not what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And the way that someone explained it to me, my, my professor explained it to me when she told me that band aids were supposed to, band aids were supposed to um, 
where it's supposed to blend into your skin. And then, and so I'm thinking, I'm thinking, no, it's just supposed to cover your, your sore. <laughs> and she's like, no, it's supposed to blend into your skin so you, so you don't see the blemish. Yeah. But the idea is, on my skin, it doesn't do that because it was designed for your skin. And that was a, that's, that, that's the idea of privilege. Be I honest, know. though, I'm so white, they stand <laughs> yes. out on me, too. So it looks like, what's the, what's the yeah, go ahead, go ahead, sorry. So no, no, <laughs> and, 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 you know, like, like, and it's not there anymore, but at one point, Crayola had a flesh color crayon, right? Oh, yeah. Um, and it's, it's, it's about being the default, you know, it's, mm. it, and, and so many people, they hear the word privilege and they go back to that original idea of, what do you mean? I, I grew up poor. Yeah. I didn't have, I didn't have things. It's like, no, no, that's not what, that's not what we're talking about mm. here. Um, and so when you get defensive, you can't, you can't even hear what what what's going on because like I told the, the the guy who I was talking to this week that was a big part of what we talked about was privilege. Mm-hmm. I'm like, dude, it's not even something you should necessarily feel bad about. It's just the case and you have to recognize it. Yeah. Um, you know what I'm saying? And we all have different privileges, right? I'm mm-hmm. a male in, in the United States, which means I have privilege too. Sure. Um and, you know, I take advantage of it, I'm sure on some level. Um but to your point about some of the effects of this to like on myself, mm-hmm. I, I think about one the, there was a shooting, there's actually two shootings almost back-to-back. Um, it was Minneapolis um, and uh, Louisiana. And mm-hmm. the first one, it just was heavy. It, mm-hmm. it, was, it, just, it was like, here we go. And you got, I got ready. I'm like, okay, here we go. Some more, another example. And then Louisiana happened. Mm-hmm. Or, or it might have been vice versa. Mm-hmm. It was, a, it was mm-hmm. vice versa. And I literally felt defeated within two days. Mm-hmm. I was at work when it, when I found out about the second one. It was a Thursday, my court day, and I I left work early, went home sick. My mm. stomach hurt. I had a headache. I couldn't do it. I couldn't face life at that moment because I was like, I'm just done. Like I can't keep doing this. Mm. Um, I parent different. I'm so hard on my kids and on my son because I I have to protect him. Like I have to prepare him for this reality that he doesn't even know exists yet, but I do. Um, and, and and it's a burden. It, 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 uh, some there's times I feel like I'm failing him because he he is oblivious to the realities of his world, hmm. um, and that's a burden. That's something that I think about constantly. Like it's like in every decision that we make for our son, I'm thinking, am I preparing him? Am I preparing him? Hmm. You know what I mean? Um, you ask a question about some of the some some of those uh, the racisms that we don't necessarily know mm-hmm. that we're doing. Think about when you go into a neighborhood. You can go into a neighborhood anywhere in the United States and you see people, you see a group of people on the corner and you then form an opinion about that neighborhood, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you, you know, you go to the neighborhood, you see a group of black guys hanging on the corner, that's the bad side of town. Like, those are little things where, you know, are you keeping that person from getting a job? No. Did you call that person the N-word? No. But that's that's a part of your bias that you have to recognize and you have to figure out why do I feel this way? What can I do to stop myself from feeling this way? I don't think that it's inherently wrong um, or that you should be sitting around beating yourself up about it, Mm -hmm. but you have to acknowledge it and and, and you have to say, okay, why is it this way? What can I do to, Mm -hmm. to, to, you know, to not feel this way? Yeah. Yeah. I, I had a, teacher in high school that I think gave me a gift. I, I didn't realize it really at the time. I haven't really thought about it even that much till this conversation, maybe a few others, but, th- th- but his, what he has said has popped up in my mind several times, which is that, you know, I think it was 15 or 16 when I was in that class. And he said, uh, 
you know, all of us are prejudiced. All of us. Mm-hmm. And I remember I was like, who are you to tell me I'm a racist? You know, <laughs> And that's not what he meant. But mm-hmm. all of us carry this prejudice, whether, whether it's about racial prejudice. Or, I mean, it, it, depending on what environment and culture you grow up in, it can be all kinds of different prejudices. I mean, mm-hmm. not just racial ones. And I, I know, I'm sure I have many. Um, bad drummers, for example, I'm prejudiced against. But <laughs> I, he said that at the time, and I remember my initial reaction was like, you know, offense. You know, I was offended. But then he explained it, and he basically said, look, we, all of us carry these predispositions, these assumptions that we have about other people. And the, the, as I've walked through my whole life, and, and, and more intentionally in the last decade, have been try, have tried to be really engaged in this conversation, I recognize that that's true. And what you said about we do all carry this prejudice and these assumptions that we have about mm-hmm. people. And I, I wouldn't, I'm not sure I agree with you 100% that you know, it's not that they're all bad. Maybe some of them are bad, some of them are good, but some of them need to be challenged. But but like you said, the key is acknowledging them and then challenging them. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like in an effort for all of us to be able to say, I'm not racist, like we don't even want to admit that we have those prejudices. Mm-hmm. So some of the people that listen to this podcast are going to mm-hmm. lie to themselves and say, no, when I pull into that neighborhood and see those black boys on the corner, I don't think that. Yes, you do. And it, do you lock your car doors? I do sometimes. You know, the funny thing is, <laughs> yeah. so uh, years ago, when actually it was right around the time we mm-hmm. moved here to Springfield, I was super intentional about not being a person who was fear-driven. Mm-hmm. Like, I really wanted to not be that person. And my wife will tell you, it annoyed her to no end that I intentionally left all our doors unlocked and did all kinds of stuff mm-hmm. that I thought was about, like, I'm not going to be afraid and... If someone wants to come in here and steal my stuff, they can steal my stuff. And I remember that. I would drive through, like, over the Rhine in Cincinnati, which at the time had not been gentrified even mm-hmm. at all. Like, <laughs> the artists weren't even there yet. Right. It was It was block after block of just large groups of, of young black men hanging out. And, and it was, it, even during that time of I'm not locking my locks, it was the first place I ever was like, I just put that button on the door. <laughs> Right, so I I recognize that and still recognize it in the mm-hmm. midst of my conversations with these people. And while I'm reading, you know, these authors that talk about race, like I rec, I try to recognize and be honest with myself about my prejudices because it's the only way, one, that I can have an authentic conversation mm-hmm. with friends that I've committed to that conversation with, and two, it's the only way that I'll ever develop any empathy for. Mm-hmm. For anybody on the other side of that line, honest empathy, not not the kind that I use as a defense to get into the story, mm-hmm. like an honest lament, not just for Alton Sterling and Philando Castle, not just for those men, but for the situation, the environment that has that they have grown up in. Whereas Randy said, we have to every day be harder on on our kids than anybody else has to because it's either us hard on them or the street or the cops. Mm. And, you know, I mentioned earlier, I, um, you know, our kids, for those that don't know, are both adopted and they're both biracial. My daughter is much lighter skinned than my son, um, but she's, she's biracial and she and both of our kids obviously know that. And we talk about all different shades of colors in my family, but my son is much darker skinned. And he, he will grow up identifying as a, a person of color. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Randy and I have talked about this. Unlike Randy, I don't, I don't have the lived experience of growing up with that. Like the innate, 
like in my gut, almost like understanding what it means to have to be a parent in that situation. Mm -hmm. So I have the anxiety of, am I preparing my son to live in a world where he has to go and live out that reality? Mm -hmm. And is he going to be 16 and with a hoodie and be stopped by someone and searched and frisked or, or worse because of the color of his skin and that's it. And then the additional recognition that, oh, if I show up on that scene where Gabe is getting frisked and searched, I immediately have a privilege that Randy doesn't have. Mm. And in fact, Randy may be even seen as more inclined to violence in mm. that situation because his son is being stopped. And so there's this like complexity that, no, that, that people like you and I, Rick, don't want to wrestle with and yeah. can't wrestle with either because we're afraid or because we're denying our role in it or we don't want to take any sort of responsibility for repairing what has happened to African Americans, black people in the past or now. And so it's a or Native Americans or Yeah, exactly, numerous. right. We have this we honestly yeah. if we were really honest, we have a tremendous amount at least to lament and repent for. Yeah. Yeah. To say like it wasn't That's, me, but our ancestors did all of this yeah. and we still benefit from all of that. And that mm. that's a really hard thing to get people to even admit to yeah. because of because it means we have to do something then about it. Yeah. It's been and, and that might be a good way for us to transition. Randy has something to add too, but I do want you to share the story that I mentioned out of the, the book, uh the essay you had there. But i just one thing before you say what you were about to say, Randy, is I I've in the last few years increasingly had a have a harder and harder time on Thanksgiving uh, because I as I've read more and been intentional about reading more like Native American history and stuff that's happened it's so hard to say well thank God for all this privilege that I have when I know I, I idealistically want to say oh this country used to just be Mayberry where Andy Griffith and all the nice people walked around. But underneath Mayberry are the bones and the bodies of the people that we had to get rid of to build that nice little town. You know what I mean? And so it, it makes things increasingly more difficult. And, and I think you're right. We do need to struggle and we do need to figure out some other ways, which I, we're kind of why I want to lead into the story that you had there. But Randy, you had something else to add. Well, no, I was just going to mention uh, when you had, you had mentioned about locking your doors. Um, Listen, don't become a victim trying to be a you have to be prudent. Um, mm-hmm. I'm locking my door sometimes too. Um, <laughs> but you have to ask yourself, why did I do it? Right. You know, why did I lock my doors? Why did I move to the other side of the of the street? If it's because you have a legitimate you have a legitimate reason or a legitimate threat. Um, or if because it's there's black people over there and you're afraid. You just have to you have to come to grips with that, right? You have to you have to own that. Mm-hmm. Um because that's when you can then make some changes if they're necessary to make. Um, and then just really quick, um, to your point about, um, I'll use the word complication because I've used that word a lot okay. when I talk about um, different holidays. So your complication with uh, with Thanksgiving, it's funny that you mentioned that because I, as a black man, and a lot of people who, who, who are like me, share those complications 
with lots of the holidays, I bet. right? Uh, with lots of the traditions of this country. Mm-hmm. And not to bring up another topic, but like with the protests that are happening now about the flag and about the, you know, the national anthem and things like that, like that's a serious conversation that we have to have because yeah. there's a extreme amount of complication with those things, mm-hmm. right? Um, while we can all sit and have fun on the 4th of July, I sit and say, what am I doing celebrating this? Yeah. Um, when when this was originally happening, there was really not much for me to celebrate. You know what yeah. I mean? So there's that, co- and, and that's just another one of those privileged yeah. things where you don't have to ruin uh, the barbecue by telling the kids the real story of the 4th of July, yeah. <laughs> which I've done. So, um, but, but at the same time, don't you think we should, though, too? I mean... I, I mean, on some level, because I, I deal with it on the patriotic holidays too a lot, a lot because of the church state thing and how often it gets intermingled. I always feel like I have a responsibility to be like, to point out, okay, this is, as a pastor, it's like, okay, this is what the church is and this is what America is, and they are not the same thing, like, in, in those things. But I think in, in some way, we, we do have to share the real story, too. But like you said, not to ruin the barbecue, but on some level, if we don't learn from the past... We, well, I think to, you know, Brandon, to Brandon's point, and and I, I wish it was this simple, but I'm not sure if it is, but I'm going to say it anyway. Because, again, I'm, you know, they're all imperfect. I think if we got to a point to where we could acknowledge these things, mm-hmm. we could all get to a point where... Yeah, I get why your 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 relationship with this holiday is a little different. Yeah, I get why your relationship with the with the national anthem is different. If, like no one's trying to change history, no one's trying to 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 get someone to have all the answers. It's just sort of an acknowledgement of the case, mm-hmm. so that we can all just enjoy the barbecue. Right. Um, you know, I think if we got to that point where we just acknowledged that 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 there's some nuance here, mm-hmm. we don't have to keep talking about it. Like yeah. I, I I say it all the time, if we can. If we can start, if we can at least come into a conversation with a set of assumptions already understood, that there are social economic issues, that there are inherent racism, that there's some bias, and that if we can come into a conversation with those assumptions already already assumed, then we can start talking about solutions. Mm-hmm. But if we're constantly re relitigating the fact that these things exist, we never really get past them. Right. right. Yeah. Deja, my daughter had a, a reading exercise last week. It was last week's exercise, and she had to read it every night. And, Recorded like how many words she got through in a minute, and then the number of errors she made, that kind of stuff. And and uh, so she's reading through this, and it was on the pioneers. And uh, for some reason, in the in the text, they were calling them the Native Americans Aboriginals. I don't know why, but so they were Aboriginals. Them Aborig- yeah, which it, it, you know anthropologically is a correct term, but I've never heard them called uh, a- Aboriginals. But anyway, so in that in that text, part of it, the first part said something like. Uh, you know, what you would expect. The pioneers were the first people to settle in North America. And and then it went on to the next paragraph and contradicted that by saying, but there were aboriginals here long before the pioneers ever got there. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, well, maybe DeAsia and I can talk, like we can learn a little bit about comp- reading comprehension by talking about the fact that this paragraph and this paragraph contradict each other. Yeah. And then a couple lines after that was, a statement about how they all had to learn to get along so that they could make food and wasn't that great that they all got along. And I'm like, man, <laughs> no. So at the end of the week, like we did our little diligent reading exercises and then at the end of the week I was like, Deja, we need to talk. <laughs> and she already knew some of this and we talked about it briefly, but it was kind of blowing her mind a little bit that, well, they didn't really get along. And in fact, yeah. like we shoved all these people off the off the land for, you know, 
decades and centuries. But the, you know, there is a like, there is a reality that some of those like, and and I would say you know the thing with Colin Kaepernick and the the national anthem and the flag like we we're it, it's it's abundantly clear where our idols lie. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean idols like in people. I mean who what what is our idol and and you don't you don't you don't attack the flag, you don't attack the national anthem because people have a such a visceral reaction to it that they can't dissociate the message and the rationale for the protest mm-hmm. from everything that they associate with that. And so it always right. mystified me that they immediately associated the flag with the military when it actually that's not what his protest was about so so it's interesting that that people it's it seemed to me another way of distracting the message you know like they do with the black on black crime it's a mm-hmm. way of distracting from the the actual message but I, I do think one thing randy said was one if we can come with a shared set of assumptions this conversation comes a lot easier it's just that we often argue about the assumptions whether there's implicit bias that sort of stuff but i do agree that there's there is a piece of it where if you can come authentically in that conversation together and you can get people together, sometimes there's a, a breakthrough where people might really hear, you know, the Native American story for the first time or the black experience story for the first time. You know, they, you know, when we're, if we're talking about the formation of our country and why someone might have a problem with the 4th of July, mm-hmm. like if you talk to them about the fact that Jefferson owned like 300 slaves mm-hmm. and that his secretary was a 14 year old slave girl, mm-hmm that he abused throughout the years of her life. Like people like, Oh, and and they can either run away from that, which honestly is a pretty natural, like that's, that's an okay first reaction to find out like your founding father was. No, Brandon, the founding fathers were all perfect (laughs) Christians. Right. There's no complexity to be had anywhere. I understand that. (laughs) Everything was based on scripture. But if you get in a moment like that, and I know he's had these moments and I, I know I've had these moments too. If you can get in a moment like that where someone pauses just long enough from their visceral reaction to consider something like that. Like it, it creates this space in this room for a conversation that might actually create some kind of change. Um, I I don't, I'm not going to dwell on this too long, but you asked me to talk about this story that I read it. Yeah. And and just so you know, just before you read that, since we're talking about books, we are almost at an hour of recording. So we'll try to wrap this up fairly soon. But uh, if if you guys do have, I, I thought maybe when when we closed out tonight, uh, I'm always looking for good books and resources, and I read a couple good ones recently. So if you have anything like that in the back of your mind that you could tell our listeners about, if there's anything you've read recently or, or something, can even be an article on the internet or something. Uh, I'm gonna make my recommendation at the end, and if you have anything in mind, but I would like you to read. This is from a textbook that you contributed to, Brandon, called Faith in Practice. Wait, sorry, Faith and Practice in conflict resolution and uh to be fair i only read your chapter i didn't read the rest of it um but (laughs) but your chapter was awesome and there was a specific section that i really wanted you to uh, talk about or read or whatever you feel like you can do best yeah so this happened uh this scenario that i'm gonna i'll read only one paragraph of it but i'll describe it and um it was basically the first uh mediation experience i ever really had and i flew to Germany and did a workshop with, um, there were Israelis in the room and Palestinians in the room and some German students and a few other collection of sort of international conflict experts. And we brought everybody there to do this workshop. And at one stage in the workshop, there was a table of mostly young, I would say activists, you know, German students and Israeli and Palestinian youth activists. And 
they were at this table and they were discussing these things and some of the facilitators and I noticed that everybody at the table had sort of just pushed themselves away from the table, they had their arms crossed, their body language was really closed off and so we just sort of kind of got closer and listened in and, and realized really suddenly that they had somebody at the table had said a really sort of incendiary thing and mm -hmm. they were trying to come to grips with how to move forward in the midst of it. And it was a German student who at the table was um, questioning why and how one of the Israeli participants could still be sort of traumatized and upset over the Holocaust, mm -hmm. you know, which, which, you know, this German student had said, you know, that happened like 70 years ago, um, 75 years ago. So, you know, back to our, our early conversation right. about time and, and how much time does it take to heal? Uh, I didn't do it. Cultural and right. racist trauma, right? So, so she had made this comment, and the and the table had kind of gotten shut down then by the Israeli person's you know pretty strong reaction to that, and and even some of the others at the table, not just you know not just this this one Israeli person, but some of the Palestinians, and I think another one of the Germans had responded strongly, and it created this environment where there there was just no ability to talk about it, and. Over the course of about a half an hour, or so we sort of redirected their conversation, and I asked in particular the German student to consider a couple of questions, and I asked them to think about her second question in particular was, "Why do you still feel like a victim?" And I had the Israelis respond directly to her about why he still felt like a victim, and he did a really good job of describing what that's like to live with cultural trauma, and even still to feel this constant threat, this constant like waking up and, and wondering is today the day you know or mm -hmm. he said it's only a matter of time it's only a matter of time before something happens right mm. um and after he had described all this the german students or she she um she recognized and acknowledged that she she finally understood what that meant but she also became very quiet and and the rest of the group after this comment they had kind of gotten re-engaged and gathered mm -hmm. back up but she was still very quiet and so i pulled her aside and i'll just read what what our exchange was like and um says, uh, at a break, I asked her how things were going. She said she felt a little worried she might say something else, quote, wrong. And I assured her that she would. Um, I also assured her that we were here to learn how to handle those moments better when you say something wrong and to hopefully reduce how often they happen. Um, she still didn't seem satisfied, so I asked if she felt like she had damaged her relationship with the Israeli participant, and she responded, quote, I said something I'm not sure I actually believe. And I'm afraid that I both hurt him and gave him a bad view of myself. So in other words, she, she acknowledged she, in, in fumbling around with what she was trying to say, she may not even meant what she said, and she knew that she had hurt him in that process. Um, I encouraged her to simply talk to him and see if he actually felt that way. And above all, I encouraged her to be honest about how she felt and that if he was hurt, to ask for forgiveness. Um, the participant walked away immediately to find the Israeli participant, and I found this to be an incredibly uh, reflective moment on her part. She she went from um, saying something she didn't mean um, to thinking about why she had said that and to figure out what to do about it. Um, later at dinner, the two of them sat together. They were laughing, and they were in conversation, and she had asked for forgiveness, and he had responded positively, thanking her for her honesty and letting her know that he appreciated her coming to him. And now they were enjoying their downtime, talking excitedly about their plans from the day and looking ahead at how they might make those plans a reality. So it, hmm. it was an interesting dynamic for two reasons. One, it was a very clear instance where saying something wrong and, and, and 
even believing something wrong doesn't have to be the end of the conversation. Right. If you are authentic and honest with who you're in that conversation with, you can go and you can say, look, I don't, I don't even know if I meant what I said, but I apologize because I know it hurt you. Like, how do we move forward from this? And that's a really honest way of approaching it. But also, like, she had made this link, um, and I, I didn't read this part there, but she had made a link between... Um, the consistent feeling of, of Israelis still feeling like victims in mm-hmm. many ways and victimized from the Holocaust to this. And if you go to Germany today, you'll still you'll sense this. And if you talk to them about it, they'll tell you about it. This continuing shame that they have about what happened in their country and in mm-hmm. their name. And she said, I, I had not connected that 75 or 80 years later, I still feel shame for what happened. But I was so quick to say, well, how could you still feel victimized from mm. this? And so it, for her, it was this really like eye-opening moment where she could connect her trauma to his trauma. And that she finally understood like how he could, how, why Fourth uh, of July might be a problem, right? Mm-hmm. Why, why, you know, singing the national anthem isn't always the best thing to do because there's a trauma there that if you can connect with, if you can find a way to connect to, like then maybe you'll, that's a way to understand what their pain is. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's great. Uh, well, aside from any like closing comments that you guys may like to have, uh, in addition to this, uh, I would really like to make a book recommendation and, and man, we could do a whole other podcast just on this, especially with, uh, working in corrections like you do. Um, but I, I read a book, uh, recently, within the last three months, called the New Jim Crow, which was a real eye opener for me, and and a lot of things that uh, we've talked about tonight, and uh, things that specifically um, the the book talks about, uh, sort of this caste like system in the United States that is uh, resulting in millions of African Americans being locked up behind bars and. Uh, and they're almost put into this permanent second-class citizen state, and and you know you can't vote, you don't have rights, and and you know now uh, criminals can't vote; they can just run for president at this point. But you know, ha ha. Psh, anyway, uh, but now the uh, <laughs> but uh, it's that was a that was a book that that was very uh, powerful for me. So just if anybody's listening and, and wants to find something that can maybe help further this conversation just sort of in in what you're reading um i'm i find that one of the best ways to help me have conversations is to read up on it and the more i can read the more my eyes get open so uh that's the new jim crow by michelle alexander and i didn't ask either of you guys to give book recommendations before you came but i thought i would just just in case you had any good resources maybe you could fill us in i'll mention a couple because i want randy to have the last word so uh two very briefly are um Lies My Teacher Told Me by James yes, Rowan yes. and uh, People's History of the United States. Those, I won't talk a lot about those. They're both history books, but they both very intentionally give the narrative that we have not been told. And in fact, Lies My Teacher Told Me is very specifically about the failure of history textbooks and history classes in the United States mm-hmm. to adequately even tell any narrative that's remotely accurate. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know about remote. That's a really I, good book. I it's incredible, it and it's very yeah. eye-opening. The, the book that I'm reading right now that I would say is more specifically about the issues we've been talking about uh, is by a guy named ta Coates, and mm-hmm. he's a, a writer for The Atlantic, um, among other things. And the book is called Between the World and Me. He has a few out, but the one I'm reading now is Between the World and Me, and it's a letter to his 15-year-old son. Mm-hmm. Um, it, is, uh, it is incredibly powerful, 
I, I, I'm not sure I would recommend it for white people who are just getting into this conversation mm-hmm. unless you're really good at, at hearing and taking critique. And he doesn't necessarily con- critique white people, but it's hard for me as a white person to read it and not feel mm. myself in that mm. blame. And maybe that has more to do with me than anybody else, but it it is a powerful, powerful book, and he is a great author, and it's a it's a it's just a letter that he writes to his son about what he's trying to prepare him for the world. It's it's really really good. I can't recommend it enough. <clears throat> so I I would recommend any book by Ellis Coase, um, but right now I'm currently reading a book called The End of Anger: The New Generation's Take on Race and Rage. Mm. Um, and because I struggle with my own rage and my own un- misunderstanding and, and, and my own inability to make sense of all this. Um, and he speaks to me about it being okay that I don't have the answers of that. And that he validates some of the ideas that I'm having and tells me why mm-hmm. I'm having them and why things are the case. Um, he's, he's an amaz- amazing author. Um, that's the book that I'm reading right now. I would definitely recommend it. Um, that one thing I want to say just really quick is mm-hmm. if, if anyone who is listening, um, if you doubt that these conversations work, um, I can assure you through my own personal experience. So Brandon may not remember this, but Brandon and I, one, we couldn't be more different, right? Um, you know, I don't. I don't wear tuxedos to to, to, to basketball games, but, but but when Brandon and I first started first started to to, to become friends, um, I had a I had a pretty pretty narrow view of the refugee crisis, mm-hmm. and I was I was convinced that the way that I looked, saw it was right, mm-hmm. and and we didn't just have conversations about this and let it go. Cause I, cause we had several conversations, and I continued to, to be wrong, and what could happen, what what normally happens in these type of situations or with these type of conversations, two people disagree, they go to their corners, and they go on through life, with different ideas. But Brandon committed himself mm. to making me see this issue in a different way, mm. and he took a ton of different avenues to do it until one day. I said, I, it literally, and it clicked. Like, there was one thing that made it make sense to me. Mm. And and I'm a pretty, st- stubborn is not the right word. But for it's lack a of whole, better words. It's another category. Yeah, I guess probably a little bit of buff stubborn. <laughs> so for me to take that conversation and actually have a different world view about something mm. is evidence that anybody mm. can have a conversation if they're if they're willing to and and, and genuinely want want, want to learn mm-hmm. and have a different outlook on things. Yeah. Well, Randy and Brandon, thank you both so much. It has been a real honor to to sit and hear your thoughts, and uh, I I respect both of you and and thank you for taking the time. My gosh, we went over an hour tonight here on on a weeknight, and I know we all have kids and, and places to be, but I think these are important conversations to have. Um, maybe we can have them again sometime. I know there's we've only scratched the surface of some of the things, but. Uh, I encourage all listeners to continue having these conversations in your communities and and enter all conversations as much as you can, I think, with a sense of humility and a desire to learn and a desire to see another perspective when you're entering into them. A lot of things can happen if you don't 
come in with your fists up and ready to fight. Um, I think there's a lot that we can learn from each other and, and many things that all of us don't know. There's there's so much in this world we can learn, uh, no matter how young or how old that we are. I got that phrase from Mr. Rogers, and uh, so I'm, I'm, and that's a good one. So um, thank you so much for being the voices in my head this week. Thank you for joining me here this week on the Voices in My Head podcast. I hope you'll visit me on my website at rickleyjames.com, follow me on Twitter at rickleyjames, like my artist page on Facebook at facebook.com slash rickleyjames, and keep up to date on what I'm writing at my author page on amazon.com. Make sure to follow my calendar on the website, and if you would like to have me come to your town to do a concert, a speaking engagement, or a book event, you can book me through my website by clicking on the link for Pair Booking Agency. That's P-A-R-E Booking. And finally, it would mean the world to me if you were to leave me a review of this podcast on iTunes. The more positive reviews that we receive, the more visible this podcast is on the internet. And now the benediction. May the God of peace who raised Christ from the dead strengthen your inner being for every good work. And may the blessing of God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit rest upon you and dwell within you this day and forevermore. Amen.